This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday and there is so much happening on the political front. There's a whole lot of flux in terms of the players and their jobs, but while all of that is still up in the air, I wonder how much actual work is getting done. So on Friday, the new Ontario cabinet will be sworn in. The biggest question is who will take over from Christine Elliott in health and will the ministry be broken into smaller parts? Andrea Horvath has started talking about running for mayor of Hamilton. Yesterday, PC leadership candidate and Brampton mayor Patrick Brown told me that He'll run federally under any new leader but Pierre Polyevre, and he would have to decide that before the leadership race is officially over. Meantime, MPs on Parliament Hill are getting panic buttons because of increasing threats against them, including death threats received by the public safety minister. And now... The Recovering Politicians Panel. And now I'd like to welcome Charles Souza, the former Minister of Finance for Ontario and MPP for Mississauga South. Lisa Raitt, former Deputy Leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. And Howard Hampton, former Leader of the Ontario NDP. Hi, everyone. Thanks for being with us. Hi, Thank lady. you. Good afternoon. Good to be here. Uh, let us start with Lisa. So, um, there's been a little bit of speculation. Uh, do you have any insight into who you think will take over in health in Ontario? No, I don't. But I know that there's a lot of capable people who could take over health. I mean, I think Todd Smith, who has done a really good job on the energy file, certainly understands big, complex issues. And prior to that, I think he was at Treasury Board, so he gets it. Um, I think uh, Pramit Sakaria, again, he is well has the ability to think about big, complex, big, complex files. So those would be two that I would think of, perhaps Caroline Mulroney. Um, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see which way this, which way the premier goes in terms of filling the spot. Carolyn Mulroney, Charles Souza, uh, you know, she, she's been involved in some initiatives, but uh, I, uh, I don't see that she has shown anything stellar. Am I being too harsh? Listen, the saying is, those that say don't know, in terms of shuffle, and those who know don't say. <laughs> and in this respect, I'm, I'm with Lisa. We, we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, Kendall Mulroney, I mean, in transport, they're going to have to figure out what to do with Highway 413, and that will be a big step. Will they move her from that role just to avoid some of the controversy? Possibly. Um, but I agree. I don't think she's been terribly stellar. I think Steve Clark has done an amazing job. Certainly, McNaughton has done a great job. But in terms of the scope and size of that ministry, you know, it's up there with health and, and education. Those are the two major planks. And uh, I'd be interested to see what they do with Stephen Lecce as a result. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, the scuttlebutt is that he'll stay. Howard Hampton, I mean, the the names that, that Lisa and Charles have mentioned, they're people who are certainly capable, but they don't, I don't think they have any particular background in, in health at all. I'm not sure that really matters at this point. I, I mean, this is a government that's been reelected. So the people in the cabinet office, the people in the premier's office, uh, will have been grappling with the health issues for some time. And they probably already have figured out where they want to go. Um, uh, so, for example, should the Ministry of Health be broken up into three different ministries? Uh, one for addictions and mental health, which has happened in other provinces, another for long-term care, and another basically for hospitals, uh, doctors, and public health. I, I think, you know, there's probably been a lot of thinking done on that in, in the cabinet office and in the premier's office. So it won't be so much about the talent or the insights or the experience of the particular uh, person. It will be more about the kind of work that has uh, gone on over the last four years and the kind of work that is, is being done now in terms of setting a direction. Um, that, that's where I think uh, the, the that's where I think this will all come together. Well, there already is a ministry of long term care, and the key there is who is running that. So uh, I think there's consensus that their first minister of long term care uh, was a disaster, Merrily Fullerton. And uh, the second one was really good, and he's gone, Rod Phillips. And, and Paul Calandra is there. Uh, Lisa, do you think he will stay in that portfolio? Well, what I can tell you is that I know for a fact that Paul Calandra cared enough to actually go and visit some of the long-term care homes. And I only know that because he went to visit my husband at Baycrest. And I thought, well, that's definitely getting a good idea on the ground of what's going on and listening to not only families, but as well to the people who work on that floor. So uh, I, I'm impressed by what Paul has been able to do in a short period of time. I think he knows his file, and I wouldn't mind if he'd stay. If he'd stay. I think it's going to be a heavy-lifting file in the coming years, and I think it's, they're going to have to have somebody who is going to care and who is going to do what's best for, for the system itself. Yeah, it's already a heavy lifting file. I mean, uh, there's no question about that. Uh, and, and health. I mean, we're, we're hearing that wait times are at record levels. That's not a surprise given that we're coming out of the pandemic and we have to ca- catch up with surgeries. We have a shortage of family doctors. I mean, y- you know, one of the things I, I saw this report last week and it was like deja vu all over again. When, when I was a cub reporter starting at, global television, I won't say the year. Uh, and one of the first in-depth things that I did was how emergencies were totally clogged because people were going there with things that were not emergencies, but they didn't have a doctor to go to. Charles. Well, that is true. That is true uh, over much of Ontario. And, and when you get into rural Ontario, northern Ontario, small-town Ontario... Uh, there are many communities that do not have doctors. What they have are locums. So uh, someone will come to the community for, say, three weeks, a month, uh, and they will be very busy seeing patients during that time, but then they leave 
and uh, they may not come back. And, and so things like continuity of care uh, and and uh, making sure that proper follow-up happens uh, with respect to patients totally falls through the cracks. And, and that is, uh, you would be surprised just how prevalent that is in rural Ontario, northern Ontario, small-town Ontario now. Even a place like Windsor, uh, is is really up against uh, this kind of situation. So I wouldn't be surprised to see the Ministry of Health broken up into further pieces. I mean, I, I think Lisa's quite correct. There's going to be a lot of heavy lifting uh, in, in long-term care. And, and long-term care, I think, needs to have more control uh, over, you know, the pieces uh, and the parts that make it make it work, which means perhaps transferring some other decision making from the 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 big ministry the ministry of health but if if the pandemic showed us one thing it, it showed us just how fragile mental health is uh and and you've got the growing problem of addictions and addictions is not just a problem in large cities like toronto addictions is everywhere in ontario now small towns rural communities um, oxycontin and percocets have not gone away and the, the incidence of people who are now addicted to drugs uh, as a result of Oxycontin and Percocets, um, it isn't, that's not going away either. Well, uh, they have a, a junior minister, I believe it is, of, of addictions. Um, so that's three. But, uh, you know, these problems, as I said, Charles, I mean, they're, they go back decades, really. They may be worse now. Yeah, it's, it's an ongoing issue. I mean, there's a lot of acute care that happens and they clog up a lot of beds and they really shouldn't be in hospital. Um, you just mentioned about emergencies. Uh, things happen where many come there. And it's not just in rural communities. It's right here in the GTA. I mean, Trillium Hospital, uh, Mississauga Hospital, Credit Valley, they're swamped with people coming into emergencies because they don't have a family doc. They try to refer them. And we've tried to position um, uh, family um, doctor groups around the hospital to enable them to get the care elsewhere. Um, but it's an issue. And, and they've tried to uh, process emergencies in a, in a more effective way to, to you know, uh, assess and provide care to those that are most urgent. But it's, it's a problem. People are there for hours. Uh, just waiting for someone to see them. And you know what? The other thing is that even if you have a family doctor, you know, uh, try getting through to the family doctor. Try getting an appointment with the family doctor in a timely way. I mean, if your kid has an ear infection or you've got strep throat, you've got to see a doctor. Sure <laughs> not do. not and next sometimes week. it happens after hours, right? It's not during the day. And that's where people end up going to the hospital. Yeah. Um, and they overcome it in some respects, but... Yeah, we have to find a better way to service the needs of those that are most in need. And it can't just be at a hospital. Uh, that's not what they're there for in that regard. So fine. And that's why I, I appreciate these family teams that are being set up around hospitals to enable that backlog to be released. Well, yeah, I just, you know, but I know. But got to pay for it, right? This is not free. Well, <laughs> this, this it, all costs money. And this is a big job for the minister. It's a massive undertaking. There's a lot of labor costs. And there are going to be a lot of disputes in the coming years over the uh, just the inflationary rates. I mean, we already saw it, it just prior to the election. And that's going to be their biggest challenge, is well, getting people motivated to work. Yeah, well, yeah. And I, w I was going to say the family practice that I go to, well, they have a walk-in clinic for their patients uh, who need to see somebody right away. But it's between 1 and 3 in the afternoon. 
Um, so there you go. Uh, we have, you know, other kind of moving things around uh, news. Lisa, what do you make of this really disturbing story about death threats against Marco Mendicino, the public safety minister? And now um, now politicians on the Hill are getting these panic buttons. We've seen violent incidents and, you know, women get so much harassment. Yeah, that's true. So um, death threats to politicians is not something new. Uh, they may be uh, accelerated. They may be of uh, more of them, but they're not new. And after 2014, the MP offices, both in constituency and in the parliamentary precinct, did have panic buttons installed for your staff. So it would be a silent way in order to communicate with the police if you had somebody in the office that you were worried about or you're afraid of. Um, when it came to death threats against ministers or members of parliament, the RCMP and the parliamentary precinct police would actually take a look at what the threats were and analyze the risk associated with it. Was it somebody who was in their condo in Vancouver, for example, really angry with the minister that night and, and put something out on social media? Or is it a serious threat from a, a seriously bad person that they have that they know would have the ability to do damage. And accordingly, a decision would be made whether or not you would get what's called close protection, and close protection basically is a bodyguard, either through the RCMP or through some other police service. I don't know. I can't really get my mind around what a personal panic button would do for you um, because we all carry cell phones or your staff carry cell phones, and you can call 911. I mean, the panic button shouldn't be seen as a placebo because, you know, what is going to get rung if you if you push the panic button? Like, where do you get put through to? Do you get to the closest the closest uh, OPP place, the closest RCMP? Um, the details on that are, are kind of wanting for me. And if I were told that your risk is so high, we want you to carry a personal button on you at all times, I certainly want to know who's going to be getting that phone call and how quickly are they going to respond? According to what I've seen on that, it gets you to local police or the parliamentary police, but uh, it it's, I don't know if it's going to get uh, you there any faster. Charles, yeah. do you have a view of this? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, I guess, symptomatic of all, all the toxic tweets that have been multiplying over these recent years. Certainly during the provincial election, it was accentuated and a number of the leaders were targeted, but in terms of actual death threats, um, I mean, the Premier, Kathleen Wynne, um, you know, she was guarded on occasions because there was some severe attacks on her, and uh, it's unfortunate. I, I never had to deal, I mean, my family and I, we were never subject to that kind of extreme, but I always felt safe. But in Quebec, I mean, the ministers, you know, their drivers are packing. They carry guns. Really? They're, I, they're, really? They're wow. Wow. And that was all because of the FLQ back in the day. Oh, I should have known that then. That's been that's been going on for a very long time. Oh, uh, yes, as 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 someone who received death threats when I was attorney general. Uh this is not new. But uh, again, I I think if we look to this to our neighbor to the south, uh we see again uh how prevalent it is. I I was shocked to see that a Someone is running for political office, uh, brandishing a gun, saying we need to go hunting rhinos in the United States. And that's an ad that's been put out there polit- uh, publicly. Um, the, you know, the, the advocacy of violence 
the advocacy of of stringing somebody up, uh, the advocacy of going hunting for politicians, I think should shock all of us. And and uh, I, I think what we're seeing now is uh, is, is only going to uh, only going to continue. I, I would just say this: uh, every Ontario cabinet minister um, has uh, an OPP uh, an OPP. I won't say detail, but uh, every every cabinet minister has uh, an OPP team that is assigned to give them advice about security uh and and that is uh heightened uh at election time uh simply because there is so much more uh semi regulated or unregulated uh contact with many many people and you will have uh OPP security details watching the events uh and and giving very close security uh, but you know, this has been going on now for at least 20 years in Ontario, uh, but I, I think what we're going to see is much more of it, again, given given sort of the advocacy of it in the United States, hmm. uh, where it's perfectly acceptable about uh, talk to, to go out and talk about hunting politicians. Well, I don't know uh, that it's brandishing a gun while you're doing but, but, um, it. Yeah, um, I also want to bring up... Um, I read this really, I thought, uh, incisive column from Tom Mulcair, the former NDP leader, the former opposition leader. And he basically said that there's a lot of incompetence in the government uh, in just in terms of delivery of what government is supposed to deliver. This is the federal government. We've all seen that with the craziness at the airports the uh, passport offices, just a lot of things that aren't functioning. And he said the, the, the fact that ministers are not taking ministerial responsibility for it is a big problem. Lisa? Yeah. Um, so this is a case where this has been bubbling and festering for a while. First of all, Tom writes a, gar- a great column, so I'm glad that you brought it up, Libby, because he gets right to the point and he does so, I think, in a pretty cheeky way. Oh, he's, but- uh, he's, he's really... Uh, really smart. He is. He's very, yeah, he is. He is. So I would say this, that um, when the Trudeau government first got elected in 2015, they came in with this notion that they were going to execute on plans. They were going to get things done. And they brought some folks over from England to talk about this thing called deliverology. And they said all the right things. They were going to be focused on delivering what was promised and delivering government services in the most efficient way. And they went into the digital economy and, and, you know, I was sitting in opposition, but I had hope. I thought, wow, this sounds pretty good. And, and I like to see this kind of, this kind of ingenuity. And then it just kind of fell away. It fell away. And what you will hear of from other folks in other sectors that uh, isn't as public is that the government does have a hard time actually completing tasks, actually sticking to the plan that they have set out for themselves and delivering on projects or delivering on promises. And now it's happening uh, in the place that any political party doesn't want it to happen. It's happening with people. And the having people um, frustrated because of lack of passport capabilities or 2 million people in the queue to be assessed for immigration 
or what I witnessed this morning at Pearson, another gigantic line of people worrying about whether or not they're going to miss their flights. Uh, these are very real problems for the Trudeau government, and they have to be seen to be getting it done. They need a win here, and they do not have any wins. Okay, I'm <clears throat> I'm going to say something probably very politically incorrect. Uh, so a p- political incorrect warning here. My experience and perception over the pandemic was there are a lot of people who worked really hard, double time, and and a lot of people who absolutely did not, who were barely working uh, and people who were collecting salary and supposedly doing whatever. And the, the conclusion that I have to come to is that where the failures are in those places, the people who were supposed to be working perhaps were not. Uh, Charles? Oh, I'm not sure that's politically incorrect. Uh, <laughs> that's just correct, I think. Um we I do have so. a situation during the pandemic where a lot of people stayed home. Um, so there was some degree of complacency, possibly. Yeah, a lot of people worked hard, but all these backlogs, be it, be it immigration, be it the passports, be it at the airport, um, is a, a lack of people coming to work and being a, and doing the job necessary to get through. And of course, it was all, all people were all aware that people were going to start traveling again. The pandemic was going to be over and there's going to be an influx of engagement. And there's no staffing to accommodate it. And that's basically the issue, I see. But there's, there's something else, too. Political staff, political teams do work hand-in-glove with the bureaucracy, or they should. And that hasn't been happening. There's been a divide. There's been a separation. I don't know if it's because of the vaccine mandates that are creating ill will with some of the, the staff that don't want to be vaccinated, and they're making it, the culture seems to be um, worsening as a result. Um, don't know what it is, but it's obviously affecting the delivery of government services. Howard, <clears throat> I, I'm so happy to hear I wasn't politically incorrect, but correct. I don't know if Howard agrees. No, no, I listen. I, I, I you know, I, I think this is a time when we need to look cri- critically at a number of things. I, I just want to add something else to, to the mix. I, I think it's quite correct that uh, you have workplaces that are, are dysfunctional now. They're dysfunctional in part because uh, some tasks uh, don't get done with everyone working from home or they, they don't get done as efficiently with most people working from home. And I, I, I know of you know, just local services where that's happened um, because you sometimes have to have face-to-face contact with people to fix their problem or to understand their problem. Uh, so that was part of it. But the disruption that happened in workforces when you have a, a significant number of people who say, well, I'm not going to get vaccinated, so therefore you can't come to work, uh, that happened a lot. Uh, or the, simply the number of people who got sick. And, and you know, there's, I think there's been a, a real underestimation of the number of people who got sick, couldn't come to work, uh, and and uh, in many cases still are are, are suffering. Uh, we, uh, they may not be suffering enough to call it log COVID, but they haven't recovered. And then finally, the people who were just afraid. I mean, you you you've got other people who were in a workplace where two or three people came down with COVID. Other folks just said, I, you know, I don't want to go to work. I mean, that was very much the situation in the hospitality industry. 
where people simply said, look, I'm not going to go to work. I, I, I know of people who worked in a supermarket, and, and the company operating the supermarket took a fairly lax approach to COVID-19. And so people simply said, you know what, I'm not going to work. And if I have to, if I have to lose my job, if I have to go on and do something else, then so be it. But I, right, I, I but, can't. But I'm, there were, you know what, uh, I, I don't think we need to, you know, relitigate that. But there's a difference from people who were making minimum wage and collected CERB and government employees on full salary who were supposed to be at home working. No? Again, you know, I'm not going to try to point a moral finger at anyone. I think we have underestimated the disruption that happened in workplaces, the disruption that happened uh, to work in, in, in many places, and much of that uh, had to do with processes that are not simple but are complex uh, and, and where simply all kinds of things fell through the cracks. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, passports, for example, uh, I'm not trying to make an excuse for anyone, but passports now, given you know, some of the things that have happened in the past in terms of terrorism, require security checks. And they require, in many uh, places, that you check out references and you do all of those kinds of, of things. Those are the kinds of things that I think fell through the cracks. Okay. Uh, the, I, I mean, the, the, the Tom Mulcair's thesis was this government is just kind of tired. And, you know, um, I'm also wondering... Lisa, in the context of what's going on in this leadership race, uh, is that going to be a viable alternative with all this terrible infighting? Well, it's certainly uh, a raucous race, isn't it? Um, it's not like anything we've seen. I mean, we saw we saw zero acrimony when Andrew Scheer was elected. We saw a little bit when Aaron O'Toole was elected, and right now, it really it really is. Um, fighting across across these leadership campaigns, which is unfortunate. Um, and it just shows you what the battle is for. The concept or in the minds of these leadership candidates and their campaigns is that whoever is going to be leader has a pretty good chance of being prime minister of Canada in the next election, just because of the fact that there's a lot of people very tired with this Trudeau liberal government. Yeah, uh, and uh, I'm wondering if, if uh, Charles, what do you think? I mean, when you look at that leadership race, what do you think? is this just going to? Yeah, it's it, there's there's a sense of intimidation though that's that seems to exist in this leadership race, and it's going to create ill will. Um, and a much it's going to be they're going to be divided afterwards, and hence uh, I think you mentioned Patrick Brown was on your show, and he's stating he won't he won't stand with Pierre if he wins, and uh, that's fair, but the question is, where are the people going to be in the end? I mean, there's a broad appeal that I think the Conservatives are trying to attract. They're trying to bring in new members to win Canada, not just their particular race, versus this extreme appeal and some disinformation that is coming through, um, which makes it more divided, and and, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, there's an opportunity, a real opportunity uh, for a change, and this next leader uh, can embrace it. Um, but I think they have to also appeal to the rest of Canada. And I'm not sure that what I see today is nothing more than, again, attesting to some extreme 
issues. Uh, I mean, we're talking about the convoy. We're, we're talking about freedom, right? Freedom is a big discussion on all of this. And yet there's a sense that your freedom doesn't mean my freedom. Like there's, there's, a, there's a disconnect in, in, the way in the way that's being presented. And um, I, I, I just see a lot of accusations and not a lot of uh, constructive uh, support. I'd like to talk about this more. We're out of time. Uh, I'm just going to ask Howard one yes or no question about all this. So uh, Pierre Poilievre, the front runner, he says he signed up over 300,000 people. He's a big cryptocurrency fan. Is that is that going to hurt him, the crash of crypto, cryptocurrency? It should. <laughs> uh, <laughs> There's a, there was a very interesting piece, uh, I, I think it was in the Guardian paper, talking about how, you know, the fascination with cryptocurrency uh, is so similar to the kind of deregulated capitalism you had immediately before the great crash in 1929. Uh, that, uh, you know, uh, people think, oh, uh, this is always going to go up. I'm always going to have more money. Uh, and uh, all of a sudden, uh, it was... Uh, shown to be a big Ponzi scheme. And in many ways, cryptocurrency is a, a Ponzi scheme. I hope to get in early. I hope to make some returns. And if things go south, I hope to be already out of the picture and moved on to something else, and somebody else will pay the price. Um, I, you know, I just find the whole fascination with cryptocurrency to be bizarre, given you know, the, the experience over the last... 60 or 70 years in terms of the economy, whether it was the dot-com collapse, whether it was uh, what we saw happen in the United States in 2007, 2008, where you had deregulation of the, uh, of the finance sector again under Bill Clinton, and, and uh, uh, you know, everything went for a dive, uh, or whether it was the Great Depression itself. We've, we've seen this game before many, many times. Uh, and yet it seems like people don't learn from history. So, you know, I would hope that at some point during this election, uh, people actually start to raise this, uh, because the last thing we need in a world that is already in a lot of trouble would be another financial collapse because everybody thinks, oh, cryptocurrency is wonderful. Howard, we got to go. We're going to have to pick up this conversation next week. And uh, when I guess we'll also talk about uh, the convoy saying they're going to go back to Parliament Hill for Canada Day. But in the meantime, I've got to say goodbye to everybody. And thank you so much, Howard Hampton, Charles Souza, and Lisa Raitt. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. We're going to take a break. And when we come back plastics and banning them. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Ottawa announced that it is banning both the import and manufacturing of single-use plastics like plastic bags and takeout containers by year's end. That also means that when you get takeout from restaurants, expect to receive alternatives to plastic straws and cutlery in addition to uh, those some of those containers. So how will this impact the restaurant industry and how far will it go to reduce plastic waste? And while we're at it, 
a refresher on how and what to recycle. I always found that confusing. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Olivier Bourbeau, Vice President, uh, uh, Federal and Quebec of Restaurants Canada, Court des Hotels of the Neighborhood Group of Companies, which operates four restaurants in Guelph and one in Kitchener, and Annette Sinovich, Director of Policy at Toronto Solid Waste Management Services. Hello, everyone. Hello. Let us begin with Olivier. So uh, I don't think this announcement was really a surprise, was it? No, no, it was not. A, it was not a surprise because we've been in contact with federal government on that matter for uh, a while now. Uh, but that being said, um, COVID cut us off guard, cut everyone off guard. Uh, what I mean by that is that uh, what we would have, uh, what we, what we would like to see from the federal government is for an extended transition time, just to make sure that the supply of the alternative products will be available, because currently. The, the 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 containers and the material that the items that we that that we are using right now are not even available in the amount that we need. So imagine the alternative products. Oh, you're saying even the regular stuff. That is correct. I I can give you an example in in, in a second. Is I, I have a chain of restaurants. Uh, they, they are a member. They have over seventy. Uh, restaurants in both Ontario and Quebec. And when they order, for instance, 10,000 containers, it's not even a question of putting their logo on. They, the supplier says, I only have half of it. So they buy half of it. So in terms of alternative products, we, we, we want to be, we want to be part of the transition. Definitely sustainability is a, is a good thing, but it's going to be important for the government to work closely with the, the suppliers to make sure that it's going to be available at an affordable price as well. Well, yeah, I think uh, those environmentally friendlier things are expensive. Uh, Court des Hotels, you have a number of restaurants and, and some of them do a, a big proportion of their business in takeout. Yeah, it's something that we've, you know, our newest restaurant we opened, that was the whole idea was to, to focus more on a, a grab and go. And our company, we've you know, pretty much removed single-use plastics and started with straws, removed plastic straws from our company eight years ago. And, but pointing on to what Olivier just spoke about, we use biodegradable takeout containers. And over the pandemic, because of the mass amount of, of uh, takeout that we've seen, especially in our other restaurants are mainly dine-in, but obviously people can only buy takeout. You see a huge cost increase in those, reusable containers. We've seen anywhere from a 30 to 50% cost increase in those containers right now. So it's been a, it's been a lot of adjustments uh, to menu pricing, which we're already seeing through inflation. Uh, but now uh, with these, these containers going up in price and just being more popular, and we're going to see that surge jump up even more now uh, with everybody having to move over to, um, uh, to these style of containers instead of the single use. Well, you're talking about those containers that are like, they look like cardboard. Yeah, the biodegradable containers. And that's a big, big focus for ours, for our company. But we've also just made a recent shift using a company called Friendlier. 
and they're actually reusable takeout containers. Uh, okay, reusable, yeah. but like, what what do people have to do? Bring them back? They bring them back. They pay a deposit on them, and they bring them back. And this company comes and picks them up, and they um, they go to a washing facility to get completely washed, and then we we purchase them back. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, the whole idea of takeout, I guess, is convenience. That doesn't seem overly convenient. Uh, Let's bring in Annette. So uh, with these biodegradable containers, I guess you just throw them out. Um, Generally speaking, most containers for takeout, you just throw them out because a lot of them are black, too. You can't recycle anything black, correct? Yeah, it's definitely a challenge. Um, Containers can vary in the products that it's produced from. So when we're hearing about a product that may be made out of a fiber product and maybe if it's soiled, then that would go into the green bin. If it's black, uh, correct, uh, it cannot be recycled in Toronto's program and it would have to go into the garbage. Then we also see um, other types of containers that might be clear or maybe made of foam. Those can be rinsed and go in the blue bin. So definitely we try to educate our residents and make sure that they get all the information on how to properly dispose of uh, the different types of items that they might be getting with their takeout. Through Just, um, just a minute, styrofoam can be recycled? Uh, yeah, we accept it in our in our blue bin program. Now it is difficult to recycle, so you do see it addressed uh, to be an item to be banned uh, through the federal measures. But right now, uh, it does uh, uh, it is acceptable in the blue bin program in Toronto, and it can be recovered and be recycled. However, it is challenging to recover and recycle it due to the nature of its um, kind of composition. Olivier Bourbeau, um what is going to be the most difficult item for restaurants to deal with? Oh, I would say the the uh, the containers themselves, uh, because you we we, we all saw cutlery as well as straws, as uh, well also uh, the steel sticks. Um, several restaurants have already made a change, um, and just so you know for. for from the big chains perspective, it's different because they, they have R&D. They have a little bit more money as well to uh, order in big supply in big amount. And, and they already started that change. But for the small independent restaurant, just to find a couple of containers, it's already a challenge. So imagine to for, for them to find enough um enough material, enough items uh, at an affordable price, considering that an average restaurant only makes a 2 to 3% margin profit, profit margin. So every single dollar counts for them. And, and moreover, um, n- number one priority for every restaurant is food, food safety. So we want to make sure that we provide uh, the food at, uh, in the safest, safest uh, way possible to our customers. I'm I'm going to take a call from Joan in Niagara. Hello, Joan. Hi there. Libby, when are the manufacturers going to be held responsible for this? You ever bought uh, a packet of batteries? You need a can opener to open it. <laughs> Uh, I am just looking up the deadlines. So... Um, uh, the importation banning goes in at the end of the year, uh, and selling plastic bags and takeout containers, uh, selling them the end of next year and exporting them by the end of 2025. That's the timeline. Is, does that mean all the stuff that we buy that is encased in plastic? 
good, good question. I would assume so. Um, it, uh, it doesn't. It doesn't? No. I, I can add there, Libby. So we do actually have at a provincial level an extended producer responsibility coming program that will be coming into place uh, in 2023. So municipalities um, will transition over a three-year period uh, their blue bin programs and producers of printed paper and packaging and packaging-like products, um, like the ones being addressed by the federal ban, uh, they need to manage that program uh, both operationally and financially going forward. So producers will be taking over the blue bin program uh, from municipalities. Right now, it is a shared responsibility. Okay. Joan, does that answer your question? Well, not really, but uh, let's hope. Okay. Thank you very <laughs> okay, much, Joan. Okay, we've got to take another break. Before we go, let me give the numbers out again. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We're talking about the banning of plastics. Do you have any issue with it? People are eating a lot of takeout. Uh, the packaging is changing, and it's getting expensive and Probably you've noticed that the whole thing is getting expensive along with everything else in the universe. Uh, so again, the numbers 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-744-740, and we'll be right back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are talking about the banning of plastics that is coming up quickly. And we're talking to restaurants and seeing how they are going to manage. And uh, it seems it's going to be difficult because it's hard to get uh, enough of these supplies for them to continue doing business as they have. And it, it's also getting more expensive and people are going to have to get used to it. And I have uh, this is a personal question for Annette. So Annette, right now we are allowed to use one plastic bag when we do our compost and if we don't have a plastic bag to shield it, the animals are just going to get to it. Like, what's the solution for that? That is a great question. Uh, so I think um, some of the uh, other alternatives that uh, we'll be communicating to residents will include potentially using other plastic bags that they may have um, from, for example, if they get some when they pick up some fruits. Uh, in the grocery store or perhaps using liners from cereal bags or other things that they might get bags from that aren't from just the point of retail. So maybe being a little bit creative with other things that can be holding on to that material. Oh, that that sounds like there is, I mean, you're going to end up with a pest problem in the city, seriously. Uh, because I, I don't, I mean, I know that right now there, there are bags that are sold for kitchen, but... Uh, I don't know. I mean, and, and what about restaurant waste, Olivier? That's an excellent question. Um, I, th I think that we will uh, take uh, this challenge one, uh, one bite at a time. Uh, let's, let's first thing first uh, focus on, on, on the product themselves, uh, on the alternative. And uh, in the upcoming weeks, we will work closely with the federal government and suppliers 
to to make sure that they can they can deliver, they can be present. And and again, it's 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 not their fault as well because we all know that because of COVID, they are uh, short staffed. They are um, also looking for their their base material. And uh, moreover, during COVID, uh, takeout and delivery have increased by far. Um, and it's going to stay for at least six months to a year in front of us. So they are facing a huge increase in demand. So they, uh, every, everyone is, is doing their best. Well, yeah. And the other thing is, and uh, I have to say for, for, for myself, that because of COVID, you know, I had really cut back on the use of, of plastic cutlery, for instance. But now, depending mm-hmm. on where I am, I am more inclined because just because, you know, you want to stay away from anything that anyone has ever touched. That is true. That uh, is true. And uh, and the restaurants themselves, we f- f- our first question is always: Do you really need cutlery? Are you going home? If if you're going home, you can use your your yours, of course. Oh, of course. If I'm going home, but if I'm here at work, maybe not. Mm. Um, yeah. I think that a lot of people sort of moved, went backwards in terms of their uh, recycling and eco friendliness. Court, what are you finding with your customers? You always definitely saw it was a big shift in focus <laughs> into a lot of throwaway items during the pandemic. We saw it all over the streets. We saw gloves and masks and let alone everybody moved to takeout containers. And that was a big concern of ours when we introduced a reusable takeout container. Are people going to be worried about using it? And then we realized, well, people eat on plates and they eat on glasses that are being reused daily in the restaurant. We wash and sanitize them. So we're hoping just to even get away from this takeout or this throwaway mentality that even a, a fiber-based container or, or a, you know, these biodegradable containers that we'll all be switching to or already have, those are still a throwaway container. We're still producing these things for a single use to throw away. So I think there has to be a shift in mindset where we have to start looking at how can the industry change from you know, our supplies coming into reusable totes to uh, takeouts being a reusable containers where we have a universal um, deposit system and cleaning facilities to, to eliminate the amount of single use that is happening right now. Hmm. And I wonder if people will go for that. Let's take a call for from Tom in Brampton. Hi, Tom. Yeah, hi. Uh, this, this replacing plastic with paper won't work because there's not enough trees in the world. It takes decades to grow a tree, and uh, you can cut a tree down with an, one of these automatic machines. It takes 30 seconds less to cut down a tree. Then once you turn that into paper, you got to grow a new tree. Okay, Tom, I'm, I'm not sure that's, uh, that is the issue uh, that they're grappling with right now, but thanks for your call. No, Let's go to Rudy in Toronto. Rudy? Hello? Hello? Oh. Yes, uh, I wanted to say that I, what I heard about restaurants uh, asking people that are taking out uh, takeout whether they're going to go take it home or eat it on the way, that's a very good idea. So they don't have to give out plastic cutlery to people that are that are going home with the food. Yep. Um, 
Yeah, that's a good idea. Thanks, Rudy, for your call. I know that I don't take cutlery if I'm taking takeout home. Uh, so what is the bottom line on this, Olivier? Do you think that uh, this you can live with this or do you need extensions or what? Uh, we think that uh, the transition should be extended, not 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 uh, for five or ten years. No, no, no. Uh, the transition should take into consideration supply, just to make sure that everything's available. So just just provide a buffer to the suppliers um, and us, obviously, uh, to make that to to be part of that transition, and for the federal government to support them. It will cost. Uh, it will need uh, the, the suppliers will need investment. Will need uh, financial support probably, um, and 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 the government needs to work hand in hand with them to make sure that uh, this can happen. Because sustainability uh, again, sustainability is a good thing. We all need to to evolve. Uh, we want to make that change, but uh, let's do it properly. Uh, when you say support, you mean subsidies. I don't know if it if it will be in, in terms of subsidies. I don't know if it, if it could be in terms of uh, labor supporting them finding workers because labor shortages um, is labor shortage is the biggest problem of of all companies, all industries in Canada right now and in the world. Um, but uh, they need to sit down with the suppliers and and ask them, okay, what do you need? What do you need? Because we want this to happen, so let's make it happen. But together. Annette, what would you like to leave us with on this? Um, you know, hearing hearing from my pa- my fellow panelists on the call today, like I would just say that um, the Toronto um, Solid Waste Department has recently launched a reducing waste uh, program to help businesses transition uh, to reducing single use and takeaway items. So we'd love for you to join the program and learn more about it by visiting uh, our website at toronto.ca slash reduce dash reuse. Okay, and Court, I'm going to give you uh, the last word. What would you like to leave us with? And uh, what are you, what would you, do you want to say to your customers? Well, you know what? Um, come dine in the restaurant and we don't have to give away all the takeout <laughs> containers. It would be a good, good start. Um, but I almost wanted to, you know, touch on what, um, what we've been discussing. We just have to look at why so much single use is needed. Um, and then in the restaurant industry, obviously we've been faced with so much, um, so many struggles over the past few years. And then these things being added on as an extra cost or an extra transition piece that we have to figure out. Why isn't the same pressure being put onto the supply chain? Because I'll tell you, every order that comes into my restaurant is wrapped in plastic. Yet they don't have to make any changes. It's the one that's being forced on the restaurants and the restaurants really don't produce that much. Um, single-use waste. It's really coming in on the supplier side. So it'd be nice to see some pressure from the government and from the public to be put into that sector as well. Okay. Thank you so much. On that note, Olivier Bourbeau, Court des Hotels, and Annette Sinovich. Thank you for your time. Thank Thank you, Libby. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads.
Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.